Good evening, everybody. <clears throat> Can you hear me okay? No. How about now? <laughs> okay, how about now? Great. So again, I just want to remind you to see what it's like to, um, as you're listening, as you're looking, as you're meditating, to be aware and be aware that you're aware. And just see what happens if you really, in a totally relaxed way, just include that. You know, you're already seeing, you're already hearing. In other words, you're aware. And then you can also be aware that you're aware of the seeing, of the hearing, of that experience. And you can be aware conceptually, but you can also be aware experientially, like start to know the awareness a little bit experientially and play with it. Be, be curious or investigative about it. So I'd like to begin tonight with something that is uh, often part of the call to practice at Zen Center because I want to make all my Zen friends feel comfortable here. And I used to go down to Tassajara and um, also Green Gulch City Center, and they use a, a block of wood like you hear the other retreat using, right? They do a little... And they use that to call people to practice, to meditation. And on the han, it's a big, thick piece of wood. I've always wanted them to give me one, actually, to give to give me an old han. But I'll, I'll tell you, I'll explain that in a minute. And um, and and then they paint on the han because they're creative in Zen. And um, and and I believe Anna was mentioning what they have on the Han, a little bit of it. it. says, great is the matter of birth and death. Life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken. Do not waste your life. And that's part of the call to practice. And I always love that and I love the Han and I love the sound and I love the fact that they would they would have this, you know, big piece of wood that they hit on for, you know, every time they're they're sitting and during sashines, you know, they're hitting it a lot and over the weeks and months and years they hit on it until after a while it it breaks. The Han breaks. The Han gets old and dies. And I always love that about Hans, that Hans have a life like everything has a life. And that what's on the Han, great is the matter of birth and death. And at least when I used to go to Zen Center, birth and death was always had, uh, it was hyphenated. They weren't separate. They were connected, birth and death. If something's born, it will die. 
If something dies, it means it was born. Birth and death are connected. And so I would like to talk a little about that connection, a little bit continuing what Anna started to talk about a little last night, about the fact that um, we were born and we've lived this long. And given the years that are in this room, that's a pretty good accomplishment, pretty good deal. And it won't last forever. All of us will die, and that's part of practice. It's not a mistake, or it's not doing it wrong, or it's not something bad. And it's included in Buddhism as part of practice, birth and death. And I've always, for whatever odd reason, been a little attracted to that part of practice, which is called Maranasati, Maranasati, mindfulness or awareness of death. And um, it, it always caught my attention it, early on in Buddhism, maybe actually because one of the first places I really meditated. Actually, at first I was with a guru who was, uh, he was not a birth and death kind of guy. He was, um, he was a little more fun than that, but, but, but he, um, he kicked me out of the group after about, I don't know, almost a year, eight months, a year. He kicked a lot of people out. And, and so I started to go to Zen Center just because I wanted to sit with people. And so I always remember seeing the Han and the birth and death, and I was touched by that. And I appreciated the fact that as I investigated Buddhism, oh, death was part of practice. That death was not outside of Buddhism, or was not, you know, even the end necessarily. It was just part of the deal for people like us. And when I say people like us, really what I mean is, it's it's part of the deal for life on the human realm. And so I was appreciated that, attracted to that, and soon after I really got involved in Vipassana practice and started doing long retreats. I remember I came out of a retreat and somewhere, maybe it was in the in the you know, insight newspaper, somewhere I I discovered the Zen Center uh, uh, had started a hospice project and you could volunteer for that. And I immediately wanted to do that. And so I s called them and they said, oh, you missed the training and there'll be another training in a year or something. And so I, 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 at least I knew enough to be persistent. Like, you know, if you bug the Buddha three times, he often says yes. He says no the first couple times, but then he says yes. And um, so I started calling, calling um, the guy who was one of the two founders, Frank Ostaseski, and um, and uh, um, and he didn't call me back at all, and uh, didn't call me back. And finally, by about the sixth time, he called me back, and I said, "I'm really interested in being part of this. This, I would like to, you know, volunteer." and he said, well, the training's done, and da-da-da-da. He said, but, you know, come over and let me meet you, and we'll see. And so I came over to meet, you know, so he could meet me 
really so he could see I'm not totally crazy and they're not bringing somebody weird in or weirder than me. And um, and I went and met Frank and, um, you know, we got along good enough and, uh, and he thought I was okay. And he said, well, you, we're not going to let you work with people, but you could help if we need to get supplies or go, you know, do errands or things. I said, Fine, I'm happy to help in what other, whatever way is helpful. And maybe three days later or four days later, they called me up and they said, he called me up and he said, oh, could you come in and um, spend five hours with somebody? <laughs> Meaning they just got their first person in Zen Hospice. And for whatever reason, they didn't have it together and they needed somebody to do a shift. And this, this is all true. And I'm like, oh yeah, no problem, I can do it. And, uh, and, I, and I think, okay, Frank's gonna train me, right? I'll go in, he'll teach me. And so I come down to Zen Center and he takes me and he said, come on up, I'm gonna introduce you to Stella. And comes up and I meet this woman, big woman lying in a bed, Stella, and kind of out of it, but okay. And, and then Frank says, okay, I have to go. And he leaves. So, <laughs> this is all true. So that, that's how I got trained at the Zen Hospice, was by Stella, who was a lovely woman and, and um, you know, dying. And, uh, and I'm there and I'm helping her with stuff. But after a little while, I said, well, you know, Stella, I haven't had any training. So if you, you need to tell me what to do. She was like, oh, okay, dearie, that's not a problem. We all need a little help. <laughs> and it was beautiful, beautiful. And so, so that was part of my um, uh, attraction and um, introduction to Marana Sati, to being mindful of death and the dying experience. And uh, uh, the... Um, Really, what I still feel is the amazing uh, opportunity that we have to pay attention to reality in all its forms, both living and dying. And really, it, and this is just a Eugene view, but I was also somebody who was um, um, at the birth of my daughter and have witnessed birth and have witnessed death and I'm still so struck by how similar they are in an odd way that this somebody arrives from who knows where and somebody leaves and goes who knows where. And, and the, the experiential is, I still just, is, I don't know what to say about it. You know, I could say things, but I don't want to sound too odd, like, oh, it's amazing or fascinating or something is just something about life. And those two moments seem to be numinous moments of life, birth and death. And it's a funny deal about death because like, Anybody here not generally have a not good feeling about death? I mean, you know, it's not, we don't usually grow up think, oh yeah, death is really good and that's great. And, you know, I get to die sometime. That'll be interesting or, you know. And, you know, I was, and I was looking one time at the Mahabharata, 
which is not a Buddhist text from the Vedic tradition, but also in, in, in every, every religious tradition has to come to some kind of understanding about death. And in the Mahabharata, they, there was a question, what is the greatest marvel? What is the greatest marvel? And the answer is each day death strikes and we live as though we are immortal. This is the greatest marvel. And, you know, it's, it's part of the human um, misunderstanding of reality, that idea that this form that we've all taken will last forever. And, you know, even intellectually, when we know that's not true, unconsciously we still think, well, nothing, nothing will happen to me. I'll be okay. I'll live. So one of the teachings that's important in this part of Buddhist practice that I want to give to you now is that everybody dies. And I know you know that intellectually, but I want to keep reinforcing that truth tonight so it starts to seep in to your blood and bones that truth that everybody dies and that dying is part of our practice and in Buddhism there's a beautiful piece around the four foundations um, uh, a saying from the Buddha he said of all the footprints in the jungle, that of the elephant is supreme. Of all the footprints in the jungle, that of the elephant is supreme. Of all the mindfulness practices, mindfulness of death is supreme. And so we're being offered the richness that the lineage, the tradition of human beings who've been studying reality in this way is giving us, is offering us for our help, for our understanding, for our awakening, for our realization. <clears throat> and people think about it all different ways. I'm going to present mostly, I think, pretty good ways people think about it, but it's really different, you know, depending on who you are. But like in the Tibetan tradition, Sogyo Rinpoche said, according to the wisdom of the Buddha, we can, use, we can actually use our lives to prepare for death. We do not have to wait for the painful death of someone close to us or the shock of terminal illness to force us into looking at our lives. Nor are we condemned to go out empty-handed at death to meet the unknown. I'm going to say that again. No, nor are we condemned to go out empty-handed at death to meet the unknown. We can begin here and now to find meaning in our lives. We can make every moment, we can make every moment an opportunity to change, to prepare wholeheartedly, precisely, and with peace of mind for death and eternity. In the Buddhist approach, life and death are seen as one whole, where death is the beginning of another chapter of life. 
death is a mirror in which the entire meaning of life is reflected. That's a beautiful understanding. Death is a mirror in which the entire meaning of life is reflected. And so part of the encouragement to start to pay attention to reality, to how reality works, how this reality works that's sitting in your seat, is so that we can um, wisely start to engage our life and see what's important to us, see what we care about, and pursue it, develop it, mature it, mature ourselves so that we can benefit from the opportunity we have by being living beings who are living on this realm, the human realm, which is considered one of the optimal realms for awakening. <clears throat> and the Buddhist stories, if you read the suttas, include the Buddha's death. Like the Buddha didn't escape death. Right? Everybody got that? He wasn't some otherworldly being. He was a human being. And he used his human beingness to awaken and find freedom in this actual realm of humanness. And it's a beautiful story called The Buddha's Last Days, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Mahaparinibbana Sutta. And I'll give you a rough translation because I can't remember all of it, but Nibbana, Mahaparinibbana, the Great Awakening Sutta, which is the Great Passing or the Buddha's Last Days. Let's see, there are a couple things I thought I would mention in here. I think. I have a lot of paper tonight, so we'll see what what works and what doesn't. Um, and I've... This, and it's a beautiful story because here I'll tell you I'll just tell you one part the first part of it is the Buddha knows he's going to die and he goes around teaching because he's got monastics living in a lot of different places and he goes around to everyone and he teaches three things sila samadhi and panya he teaches virtue he teaches uh contemplative practice, he teaches understanding. And he, what he's doing is he's giving his last teachings and this is what he finds important to teach, sila, samadhi, and panya. And, uh, well, I have no idea what I wanted to tell you about in here besides that, but let's see if I find it. Maybe not. You'll have to read it yourself and see see what happens. Yeah, it's a beautiful story, and I'll tell you a little more what I wanted, what I love about the story. It's because it also tells the story of the people around him and how they feel about him. They know he tells people he's going to die. He knows that's going to happen. So, like Ananda, his you know trusted assistant, um, he tells Ananda he's going to die, and Ananda's like, you know, may the blessed one stay for a century. Yeah, 
Some people don't like the fact that the Blessed One's going to die, so they push their, their chair around and <laughs> do things, and they, they get rowdy. And, you know, because there's, some, there's a preconceived grief that we all know if we know someone who's going to die. We know what that feeling's like, and people had it for the Buddha. And so it's, it's, it's just inherent in the Buddha's teaching, the teachings around death, and the death includes even the greatest figure in Buddhism, Buddha, who dies. And it's an, so it's an archetypal story, and it it's, show, talks about you know his his opportunity to teach, and for people, really, what he's teaching is people: death happens. Learn how to live life. Take life on, sila samadhi panya, right? Sila the other way, I, I like to use virtue, but you could also use morality or ethics for sila. Samadhi is generally translated as uh, contemplative or concentrative or, you know, and uh, panya is really the wisdom that comes with practice. And don't, those just aren't ideas, beliefs. That's, that changes our life. Our life becomes sila, samadhi. Panya. And so thinking about this, like reading about the Buddha's death and how he died and what happened also, you know, I can say a little bit, given the accident I had about a year and a half ago, where, you know, I could say it different ways. I almost died. It wasn't clear whether I was going to live or die. One of my teachers, and I don't, I don't, I haven't discussed what happened a lot with people or tried to figure out what was that. You know, in a Eugene way, the way my mind works, shit happens, shit happened. I had a bad bike accident and I could have died. That, that happened. But when I talked to one of my teachers, senior teacher about it, seriously, who saw me in the hospital in the first week, he said, oh, you died. You died. And that was very interesting to hear because it relaxed something in me because that was a lot what the experience was like. That, and dying is going to happen to all of us. That's just, that's normal. That's not outside the realm of normal. Even accidents, they're normal. Accidents happen. People, you know, are riding my bike again. I'm having a good time. You know, I try to be careful, all that stuff. But, but people say, how could you ride your bike after the accident? I'm like, accidents happen. You know, that's not like, you know, should I, if I had an accident in my car, I should never drive a car again? I mean, what are you going to do? We're going to live life, and no matter what we do, Everybody is going to die. I'm going to die. You're going to die. Right? And it's something, given your age, or the age of this retreat, you're more sensitive to than sometimes when we have a retreat for, and it's a normal retreat or younger retreat. Because as one starts to age, we start to feel or sense or know, oh, this this is not going to last. This actually deteriorates. You know, am I, you know, and I, and I have a, 
pretty good body, actually kind of amazingly good now after the accident because it was all broke up. But um, but still, it's not the body it was five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, right? Right? Anybody have the body they had when they were thirty? You know? No, it's not how it's not how it works. It's not how reality works. It's not a bad thing. It's what does it mean to come into harmony with the way things are? And that's an interesting part of practice. And just like I said with the Buddha, uh, you know, they describe what happens for Ananda and people. Or, or when the Buddha dies, they also describe what happens, you know, like some people grieve tremendously. When I say people, I mean monastics. Tremendous grief that they've lost the Buddha. Some monastics are like, oh, why are they crying? Don't they know this is reality? And they have a more, a different response. And one or the other is not right. At least if you're hearing Eugene Cash teacher. It's not like, oh, the ones who cry are wrong or the ones who are not crying are wrong. They're both people respond differently and we want to be respectful of the uniqueness of people and the ways that different people might respond. And again, for me personally, maybe the most um, sensitive place for me, really I feel it now too, is uh, so I, I a day after my accident, um, or maybe the day of my accident, my wife called my daughter and she and her boyfriend flew out the next day from New York and were there, you know, a day after my accident. And I think one of the things I feel worst about, about the accident is not, I never feel like, oh, that was horrible, I had an accident and I shouldn't have or anything. I just, sometimes I feel bad for what, it did to my daughter. And to be honest, I don't even think it did a bad thing. It's just a hard thing when you have your dad who's kind of never had any problem that way, basically maybe dying in front of you. And so it's been interesting to watch the impact on her of my almost dying and my serious accident. Where they didn't, and even after, okay, it was clear after, you know, I think within about a week that, okay, I wasn't going to die right now. But then it was like, would he come back? Would I come back? Because I had a serious head injury and it was not clear at all what would happen. And so she had to live through that kind of impermanence and change and dukkha, right? That's dukkha if you're a daughter. And I have a really lovely relationship with my daughter and and we just never had anything like that. And so uh, it was very interesting. And it's still been interesting to see how, oh, she's a different person because of what happened. Just as I am a different person because of what happened. And it's not bad. Like I'm really, she is more, um, I, I could just say a lot of good things about how it impacted her, even though what a difficult thing. 
and I wouldn't, I don't recommend it. Like if you want your daughter to mature a little more, go have a really bad accident and almost die. No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that when we come face to face with reality, it doesn't mean it's easy and it can be very painful. But what else is gonna, where else are we gonna learn about reality except by meeting it face to face? And she had to meet this reality that her dad was, you know, either gonna die or seriously hurt and didn't even know would he come back. I mean, because it, it took a while to really come back. And so it starts to, inf here's what I loved about how it impacted her. It's changed how she relates to her life. She's very, um, a talented person and very committed to her work, been very committed to her work. But I see since then she gets, oh, career is not everything. That's just not everything. It's great and she's still got good and all good, but her relationship with her boyfriend deepened and he's a wonderful guy, good guy, and, and they ended up getting married recently. And maybe that would have happened anyways, but it seems like there was she's a different person since that accident, since becoming more face-to-face -face with death and the fragility of human life. And we all here, just by age, are coming more face-to-face -face with death and the fragility and the temporality, the impermanence of human life. And I'm saying to you, and I mean it sincerely, that's not a bad thing. Let's use it as an opportunity to wake up, to see what is this, what's here. And then just also to live your life, whatever, you know, whatever it is. It's a year, it's five years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years. You know, if you go into that 125 thing, you know, whatever it is, live your life let it be infused with what you care about. And this is from Diane Ackerman. She said, when you consider the inevitability of death, when you consider the inevitability of death, after which we may well go out like a candle flame, then it probably doesn't matter if we are awkward sometimes. <laughs> right? doesn't matter if we're awkward sometimes or if we care for another too deeply or if we are excessively curious about nature or we're too open to experience or we enjoy a non-stop expanse of the senses in an effort to know life intimately and lovingly. She continues, she says, it probably doesn't matter if we sometimes look clumsy or get dirty or ask stupid questions, or reveal our ignorance, or say the wrong thing, or light up with wonder like the children that we all are. So death and the truth of reality may give us the permission to be who we are. All the pluses and minuses of who we are. So Buddhism about death are typically from the Buddha. And then also moment to moment, moment to moment practice. 
in addition to death, I'm trying to remember who this is from, oh, Nana Taloka. He said, in addition to death in the conventional sense, in Buddhism, marana refers to the rising and passing away of all mental and physical phenomena. All mental and physical phenomena passing away. This momentariness is described in the Sudhimaga in this way. But what it's pointing at is why paying attention, starting to be aware moment by moment, 24 hours, 24-7, starting to really pay attention to this living experience and starting to see the momentariness. Starting not just as an idea, it's a good idea, great, we know it's all momentary, but we start to experience the way reality is. We start to lose our, separ- our distance from reality. It's not just as an idea that we know reality, but we start to see, oh, rea- this is, we are reality. Reality is sitting here and being and knowing itself as a, this momentariness, arising and passing, arising and passing, arising and passing. And so in the Vasudhimaga, it says, in the highest sense, beings only have a very short instant to live. As a wagon wheel, when rolling as well as when standing still at any time rests on a single point of its rim. Right? The wheel, right? I don't have a good wheel here, but, you know, it just rests on one little point. And that and they're saying, oh, our life is like that. So just, just so the life of beings endures only for the length of a single moment of consciousness. Now that... I'm going to say that again. The life of beings endures only for the length of a single moment of consciousness. When this is extinguished, so is the being extinguished. And remember, Anna was pointing at the non-selfness today. For it is said, the being of the last moment of consciousness lived, now no longer lives, uh, now lives no longer and will also not live again later. The being of the future moment of consciousness has not yet lived. Now also does not live and will only live later. The being of the present moment of consciousness, the being of the present moment of consciousness, did not live previously, lives just now, and will not live anymore. And so they're pointing to this not selfless based on how reality is actually manifesting moment by moment by moment. And then we imply through memory and projection and ideas, past and future, oh, we live all this time. Rather than seeing that actually the person who's sitting here in front of you, I'm not the person before that accident. Not at all. That is so clear to me, right? Now I'm not, there's some connection to that. It's not just, it's not just that was somebody else who had the accident or something, but I'm, but what's here is alive right now. And that living reality to start to uh, pay attention to what's here moment by moment, points us at the living reality, not the memory reality, not the idea reality, not the projected reality. 
to the isness or hereness, or sometimes in Buddhism they say the thusness of what's here. And what's beautiful is you won't get this by thinking about it. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, we can think about it, talk about it, conceptualize it, but it's why practice is so beautiful, because practice is pointing at the isness of it. So Marana Sati, what a what a beautiful, I think, part of Buddhist practice. That there there these are these reflections on death that we'll we'll look at in a little bit. We'll we'll talk about that that talk about three things: the inevitability of death, the uncertainty of when death happens. And that dharma is what is skillful and helpful in working with death. I believe me. Here, like you know, I like you know, I like to teach and talk. And every once in a while, I say, "Here's something really true." It means everything else. Challenge it. See for yourself. All that. But you know, believe me, when you die, your computer, you won't care about it. Your, your iPhone, you will not give a shit about that. Your things, I mean, you know, whatever, whatever is, you know, there's so much that gets important for a while in life, and that's all fine, but let's see really what's, what's really important. And Dharma is one of the things that points to import. And then I want to, let's see if I can find it. God, I can't believe how many, much paper I have with this. That's fascinating. Really, all I'm looking for is the four foundations. Oh, here they are. So, in the four foundations of mindfulness, or the four foundations of awareness, the four foundations of awareness, um, the first foundation, it's, it's beautiful. If you've never read that sutra, sutta, read it. It's, it's just beautiful. First, it just, it, it's just great. The Buddha just said, here, if, if you want to be free, here's what I'm offering. Here's how to wake up. And then he goes through mindfulness of the body, which is the first foundation of awareness. And he goes through, you know, breath and posture and different, you know, sense doors and, you know, and then uh, full awareness and all movement and sitting, standing, walking, lying down and reaching and grasping and, and in um, uh, eating and drinking and in peeing and defecating. I mean, he's not shy at all. He's putting it all in there, life in there. And, uh, and in speaking and keeping still. So right now, what we're doing, this is mindfulness of the body practice. I'm speaking, you're keeping still. And it's, it's one of the keys to practice that I love is the body is a doorway and the ground, as far as I'm concerned, the grounding doorway to the whole dharma of the foundations of awareness. And... Um, and then after a lot of different body teachings, the elements, the four elements, and the, the 32 parts of the body. And, and then the last part of the uh, body contemplation are the nine charnel ground contemplations. 
Everybody got that? The nine charnel ground contemplations. Y'all, anybody not know what a charnel ground is? Charnel ground is where people were taken to be burned in the Buddha's time, right? The charnel grounds. And he would um, encourage, because remember, and this is, uh, is not emphasized at all enough. When we talk about the foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha always teaches them both internally and externally. Internally and externally. You're mindful of body internally and externally. You're mindful of, of all the foundations internally and externally. Meaning, we want to pay attention to what's happening here. And then also the way it manifests elsewhere. Because it's man- all manifesting elsewhere. That's a whole nother talk I'll give someday. But, um, so the charnel ground contemplations, he would encourage practitioners to go to the charnel ground and contemplate the dead bodies. And because here's what would happen is poor people couldn't afford the fuel for the fire to be burned. So their bodies would be taken and left there. And then their bodies would take longer to decompose as happens in that way. And so, and I'll just read you a little, just so you get a little flavor of the, of the imagery. And wow, I'm just amazed at how long this talk is taking. I'm meaning how much uh, there is and how little time is left already. But it's okay. You don't mind if I do a two-hour talk, do you? <laughs> um, he says, uh, bhikkhus, uh, uh, as though uh, uh, one were to see a corpse thrown aside in the charnel ground, one, two, or three days dead, bloated, livid, oozing matter. A bhikkhu compares this same body with it. Oh, this body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. So we look at what happens to bodies and we contemplate, oh, that's, that'll happen here. Maybe not today, not tomorrow, not next week, but someday. And then it continues. He, he just continues talking about it. And he says, one abides contemplating the body as a body internally, externally, both internally and externally. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. That is how a practitioner contemplates the body as a body. And actually the line I just read you is throughout all the foundations of awareness that one contemplates internally, externally, and one abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. That is how one practices. And then he goes on and he continues, he talks about what it's like for the bodies that have been left at the charnel ground. He says, he says, as though um, one sees a corpse thrown aside in the charnel ground, being devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, jackals, or other kinds of worms. And a bhikkhu compares this body will someday be like that body. And even if we're in caskets, sometimes even the, the worms get in anyways. Don't, don't worry about it. You'll be, you'll be food. And he, and he just goes on and on. There's a whole list of 
contemplating and what you could do right now is really contemplate that your body's going to be like that and see what happens to your consciousness if you let the con- the contemplation happen oh that this this will be thrown aside at some point or you know put in a through a funeral or cremated it will not last even though we, you've made it look really good so far, right? Or you've exercised it, or you fed it, or you medicated it. But really, to feel, feel, oh, this, no, this is not, you can feel the face, you can feel any part of the body, none of it's going to last. And when I say feel, I mean sense with your consciousness, this reality that we take to be me, Right, because we're very identified with the body. We often think, oh, that's who I am. Well, that part of whoever you are, that is not going to last. And so it's a very powerful experience to start to come into contact with bodies that are no longer alive. And it's part of the practice that I did, you know, both in hospice, and as part of life, it happens. I mean, it was always quite powerful to witness life leave a body. Like, what the hell is that? And what what left? And then, and then to see, oh, the body's still alive. It's not alive in the way we talk about living, breathing, heart beating. But it keeps changing. That's what I mean by life. It has its own life now. And the longest I ever sat with anybody was three days. And that was just wild to watch what happened to a body just in three days. And this was not with vultures and dogs and all that stuff. But it, but it was just that, oh, life keeps doing its thing. And also, you know, it's always amazing for me to, um, I got to participate in my mother's death and, um, you know, care for her the last days and then her die. And then, you know, even washing her body afterwards. And, you know, the appreciation, the gratitude, the total love. But is that her? She wasn't there anymore. Or, or my dad, who lived a long time. My dad lived to 92. I, can't, I really can't remember if it was 91 or 92. He was tired of living. That, that was clear. He was, he was vocal, my dad. And he was like, oh, could I get the hell out of here? You know, because everybody, all his friends had gone. His world had gone. And so, and he was, and he was happy when he died. And it was wild to... Be the be with him after he died, and see him, and see the body, and see. Oh, he's not there anymore. And here's an odd part that was part of the awareness that happened was, I was happy, but it would also I realized, oh, he's not an old man anymore. And I realized he'd been an old guy for quite a while, and I'd fixated him that way. But I actually knew him for a lot of years, and he hadn't always been old. That was only one part of his life that had gotten fixated in my mind. 
And it freed me of that fixation. And it freed him of that fixation because he wasn't an old guy anymore. Who knows what or where he was. And, you know, I'll tell you about that the next time we do a talk. But, <laughs> but yeah, very moving. And very, you know, it's very powerful to start to see the normalcy and okayness of death. And it doesn't mean you should. It means you'll keep learning as we keep living and dying. And let's see what happens. This is from uh, Ta Wei, who was a Chinese monk. And, and I have a whole thing of Chinese death poems, because that was a tradition in the, in the Chinese lineage. And um, um, he announced he was going to the monks and nuns at his monastery and the lay people. And his attendant said, well, you have to write a death verse because it was part of the tradition. You have to write a death verse. And he said, he said oh, without a verse, I couldn't die. <laughs> and, he, and he wrote, birth is thus. Birth is thus. Death is thus. Verse or no verse, what's the fuss? <laughs> <laughs> and you know now that's an interesting <laughs> perspective right because <laughs> he knew something of course you know great to have a verse you want a verse here's my verse <laughs> so and and then also there's a tremendous respect in the dharma for reality and living dying reality and so in, in our tradition and one of my teachers teachers teacher said as as he went to visit a woman a lay person lay woman who is dying and he said now determine in your mind to listen with respect to the dhamma during the time i am speaking be as attentive to my words as if the buddha himself was sitting in front of you, right? So, okay, so now I'm doing Buddha, right? Just like he was doing. So listen, listen as if the Buddha was speaking to you now and see what that's like. Today I have brought nothing material of any substance to offer you, only Dhamma. Listen well. Understand that the Buddha himself, with his great store of accumulated virtue, could not avoid physical death. That the Buddha himself could not avoid physical death. When he reached old age, he relinquished his body and its heavy burden. This lump of flesh that sits here in decline is Sakadama, the truth, the truth of this body. And it is the unchanging teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha taught us to look at the body, to contemplate it, and come to terms with its nature. The Buddha said that rich or poor, young or old, human or animal, no being in the world can maintain itself in any one state for long. Everything experiences change and estrangement. This is a facet of life that we can do nothing to remedy. But the Buddha said that what we can do is to contemplate the body and mind and heart and see to them, see 
their impersonality, see that neither uh, the body or mind or heart is me or mind, like we were contemplating today. To see that it's arising, it's reality, it's life arising. And that the me, mine, I, it's fine to use that. That's a relative truth. It's not an ultimate truth. And so we can, you know, this is Eugene. Good. If I don't, if I call this, you know, Sydney or Jacob, uh, that would be kind of silly at this point. And I mean, yeah, could, but you know, this is the Eugene relative. But Eugene's still just a name for something that is not Eugene. That's not the ultimate nature of what is sitting here. It's the relative way we talk about Eugene. And so he goes on to say, he said, Richard, poor young or old, blah, blah, blah. No, you know, not everything experiences change and estrangement. It's a fact of life. What we can do is contemplate body, heart, and mind and see reality, see their impersonality, see that neither is mine or my, me or mine or I. The truth doesn't apply to you alone. Everyone is in the same position. Everyone is in the same position, even the Buddha and his enlightened disciples. They differ from us in only one respect. And this is Ajahn Chah, who I'm reading from. They differ from us in only one respect, and that was in their, ex in their acceptance of the way things are. They saw it could be no other way. So there's a lot more I could talk about, but I'm, I think that's maybe enough for right now. Some of what I would have thought I would do, I'm going to do tomorrow during the inquiry. We'll do, we'll keep this contemplation going. Um, but there is something I would like to read you, if I can find the right pages. I'm sure I will at some point. Hmm, there we go. So two things I want to read you, tell you. And this is from the, again, from the Pali Canon. This is the advice to Anattapindaka. Anattapindaka is our lay forefather. Anattapindaka played a big role in Buddha's life and in Buddhism. He recognized the Buddha early, and he was a wealthy man, Anathapindaka. He supported the Buddha founding the Sangha. So when the Buddha wanted a monastery, there was a beautiful grove, Jetta's Grove, that looked great. And the guy who owned Jetta's Grove said, uh, oh yeah, you can have it, just cover it with gold and then you can take it. Meaning, you pay me a lot of money. And Anathapindaka's the person who stepped up and put out the money so then the Buddha and his monastic followers could have a place to live. And, um, and this is about Anathapindaka's death, the advice to Anathapindaka. And he's dying, he's, he's ill, he, he's old, he's your age. You know, whether it's 55 or 59 or 62 or 64 or 73 or 79 or 82, he's your age. 
He's gotten old. And, and, and Sariputta and Ananda, I believe it's Sariputta and Ananda. Let me, let me be accurate. I can't tell. Definitely Sariputta and Ananda. Okay, good. It's always good to see my memory keep coming back a little bit. Um, come to see him and how, how are you doing, you know, householder? And he says to, he says, Venerable Sariputta, I am not getting well. I am not comfortable. My painful feelings are increasing, not subsiding. Their increase and not their subsiding is apparent. Just as if a strong man were splitting my head open with a sharp sword, so too violent winds cut through my head. I am not getting well. Just as if a strong man were tightening a tough leather strap around my head as a head, headband, so too there are violent pains in my head. I am not getting well. Just as if a skilled butcher or his apprentice were to carve up an ox, ox's belly with a sharp butcher's knife, so too violent winds are carving up my belly. I am not getting well. And they, he, you know, he, he, get, he trans, transmits that to them. And so they start, they say, okay, then householder, you should train thus, right? I will not cling to the eye and eye consciousness, to the ear and ear consciousness, to the tongue and tongue consciousness, nose, nose consciousness, etc., etc. And then, and they start giving him this beautiful teaching of not clinging. I will not cling to forms, to sounds, to odors, to flavors, to tangibles, to mind objects, etc. I will not cling to eye consciousness. Goes on and on. To, and then uh, what else? I will. And then the various elements. I will not cling to the earth element, the water element, the fire element, the air element, the space element. I will not cling to the consciousness element. And my consciousness will not be dependent on the consciousness element. And, and, then he keeps, and then they keep saying, Householder, you should train thus. I will not cling to material form, to feeling, to perception, to formations, to consciousness. And my consciousness will not be dependent on consciousness. And I will not cling to infinite space. And they're talking about rarefied states of uh, samadhi, or jhanic states, states, and then they keep saying, "And I will, and householder, you should train thus. I will not cling to this world, and my consciousness will not be dependent on this world, and I will not cling to the world beyond, and my consciousness will not be dependent on the world beyond. I will not cling to what is seen, heard, sensed." cognized, encountered, sought after, examined by the mind, and my consciousness will not be dependent by, uh, by that. And, and then they say, and they've given him this teaching, which he's taken in, and they say, how are you doing? What, what's happening? And are you foundering? And he says, no, Ananda, I am not foundering, I'm not sinking. But although I have long waited upon the teacher, the Buddha, and the bhikkhus worthy of esteem, never before have I heard such a talk on the Dhamma. Right? He's never heard this kind of non-clinging that they're pointing at. And, and, and they say to him, such talk on the Dhamma householder is not given to lay people. 
That's not usually given to lay people. Such talk on the Dhamma is given to those who have gone forth, to the monastics. And here, Anattapindika, speaking for us, says, Well then, Sariputta, let such talk on the Dharma be given to lay people. There are clansmen and women with little dust on their eyes who are wasting away through not hearing such talk on the Dharma. And there there will be those who understand the Dharma. And they, they listen to him. And that's a transmission that changed the face of Buddhism in his dying. And he then dies and has a good death, whatever that means. And, and the Buddha acknowledges him after he dies and highly esteemed Anathapindaka for his purity of heart and, and action and life. And then just the last piece I thought I'd read you, because it's, it's such a beautiful teaching. It's from the Zen tradition. Um, and it's from a, a book that I read, one of the way, way early books that I read when there were only five Buddhist books around called Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. And, uh, and it's called Letter to a Dying Man. And so maybe someday you might receive this letter. This was from uh, Bissau, who wrote this letter to one of his disciplines who was about to die. He said, the essence of your mind is not born. The essence of your mind is not born, so it will not die. The essence of your mind is not born, so it will not die. It is not an existence which is perishable. It is not an emptiness which is merely void. I know you are ill. Like a good Zen student, you are facing that sickness squarely. You may not know exactly who is suffering, but question yourself, what is the essence of this mind? Think only of this. You will need no more. Covet nothing. Think only of this. What is the essence of this mind? Of this, I would use the word consciousness. What is the essence of this consciousness, of this mind? And then he says his beautiful last line. He says, your end, which is endless, Your end, which is endless, is as a snowflake dissolving in the pure air. Your end, which is endless, is as a snowflake dissolving in the pure air. Let's sit for a minute before we end.
Thank you for your kind attention. Um, <clears throat> we'll we'll start. Who who rings the bell for the next uh, sitting? Do we know? So uh, why don't you ring the bell? Um, ring it. F- Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.